0: Isaiah chapter 7 verse 10 Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz Ask a sign of the Lord your God Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven But Ahaz said, I will not ask And I will not put the Lord to the test And he, this is Isaiah, said Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now, let's go over to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. A more familiar passage. Thank you, brother. A more familiar passage. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come this morning during this beginning of the Christmas holiday and we long to understand familiar truths in new and deeper ways. We long to see your Son in the beauty of how you want Him displayed. We pray, Lord, that you would allow us today regardless of our lot in life, to hear a word from you. Help us to hear your word today, not as a a book, not as a letter, not as mere words, or even, Lord, as a person delivering a sermon, but I pray, God, that your word would be heard as from you. So prepare our hearts, even right now, Holy Spirit, for that to take place, that we could see the beautiful reality of who Jesus is in the Old and the New Testament to these texts today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Emmanuel is uh, one of the few names in the Bible that probably most of you knew the meaning of even before we came here on Sunday. The meaning, obviously, is God with us. There's a lot of other names in the Bible, and for the most part, we don't necessarily know or remember what those names mean. Many of them have meanings, but this particular name we know. And the reason that we know it is because in the book of Matthew chapter 1, Matthew makes a very specific point to translate the name of this, or the meaning of this name for us. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, we saw they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds this little parenthetical translation, which means God with us. Several months ago, while we were studying the book of Matthew and in Matthew chapter 1, I came across this little phrase, which means God with us. And it piqued my curiosity. I began thinking, now, what what is this all about, this little phrase, God with us, and why would Matthew put this little parenthetical thought in there? Because usually when someone puts a parenthetical thought in, they do so because it's important, because there's something that they want you to know, or some kind of fuller nuance that they want you to understand. And so I did a little research as to the background and the meaning of this name, Emmanuel, and what I found was just really remarkable. In fact, it was so remarkable that I needed to spend more time on it, and by then I knew, you know what, I don't have time to go deep into this name like I want to at this point, so I kind of put that on the side burner and thought, you know what, I'm going to come back to this, and we went on and arrested the study of the book of Matthew. But I thought I'd love to be able to come back and dial deep into this idea of what means, what what the, the meaning of this name, God with us, or when Matthew says, which means God with us, why did he say that? Well, this morning we're going to do that. We're going to try and figure out the meaning of this name. Because I discovered in my journey this week, and and also just in my quick cursory um, journey in that name, that it's loaded with meaning. And what happened is that I began to understand the meaning of Emmanuel. I understood Matthew's use of it in a whole new way. In fact, I love it when that happens. When I find something familiar, and then I see the bigger significance of it. I I like things that I know, and then I know how they actually kind of grow and how they get more in meaning and significance, kind of like family traditions. You probably have some family traditions, and if you ever asked your mom or your grandmother or your wife or your husband, hey, why do we do this? Oftentimes it's because of something in the past. Uh, on our Christmas Eve, we'll have what my boys consider to be the finest meal of all meals that mankind has ever made. It's, um, you know, sweet ham and this um, uh, sweet potatoes. Everything's sweet this time of year, you know. So you got ham and sweet potatoes and green beans and gravy. I mean, it's just beautiful. And then I found out that the reason my wife makes it is because her mom made this. And so now it has even more significant because it's got historical traction. It's just not its not only good, it's been good for a long time. See, that's what it is. And so when I find something that has meaning and then I find the depth of it, it, it has a whole new context for me. And that's what happened um, with this word Emmanuel. And this morning I want to help you understand why you ought to love, in fact, why everyone ought to love the name Emmanuel, why everyone ought to love this name, and I hope you leave this morning greater in love with Jesus and a greater understanding of the beauty of what Matthew sees when he looks from the New Testament back into the Old. Now, in order to understand what's going on here in the text, I have to do a little bit of a teaching thing on the nature of prophecy. When I mention the word prophecy, most of us immediately think of another word, and that's the word prediction, we well, we think and maybe you love prophecy because you love hearing about things in the present tense and look forward to when they're going to happen in the future. And there's a lot of things in the Bible that relate to predictive prophecy, uh, meaning things like Matthew chapter or uh, Micah chapter five and verse two that predicts that the Christ child or the Messiah was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. In fact, it was so clear and so evident that if you were to look in Luke's gospel. Um, not only did the wise men seek him in Bethlehem, but they were told to seek him there by the the religious rulers of the day. They knew that um, the book of Micah was pretty clear. So there's things in the Old Testament, like in the book of Daniel, that clearly identify things that are going to happen in the future, and they have a singular fulfillment. There's going to be one Messiah, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oftentimes we think of prophecy like that, that it's predictive. Something said now, that's predicting the future. But what you need to understand is that not all biblical prophecy is just predictive. There's a whole other category that is prophetic, but it's different than just being predictive. And Matthew uses this kind of prophecy all over the place. In fact, more so than any other author, he uses a kind of prophecy where in the New Testament he stands and he looks back and he sees the connections to things that are unfolding in the drama of God's redemptive history. So from where he sits, he can now look back and he sees things that were hinted at or prophecies that were made that were kind of veiled. They were types or, or things that weren't necessarily clear. Or even in some cases, the prophecy was fulfilled in the lifetime in which it was given, but the fuller and deeper meaning of it wouldn't be clear until the New Testament times. So there's some prophecy that has one type of fulfillment, one specific thing in the future. There's another type of prophecy that has an immediate fulfillment, or it's a type, and the full understanding of it's going to be clear. And in the New Testament writers, they can look back on the Old Testament and say, oh, here's what was going on. A couple examples of that. So in the Old Testament, Moses lifts up a serpent in the wilderness And anyone in Israel who'd been bitten by serpents, when they looked at the serpent that was lifted up, they were healed. And to that, later in the New Testament, Jesus says, As the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up. So Jesus, looking back on the Old Testament, says there was a sign, there was a symbol, there was a prophecy, if you will, of that which was to come. Uh, another um, example of this would be just the way in which all throughout the, the New Testament you see the writers looking back and seeing how God just showed himself more clearly evident in the lives of his people. Like when Peter was preaching in the book of um, Acts at the Pentecost and he said, now is fulfilled in your hearing what the book of Joel said, that your young men will dream dreams and they'll prophesy. And there were lots of times when young men dreamed dreams and prophesied, but now the Spirit of God was poured out and he could look back on Joel and he could see now the fulfillment of what was predicted in the Old Testament. And Matthew does this throughout his book. He looks back into the Old and he sees things that now have a a fuller meaning. We kind of do the same thing in our present-day culture, but um, it's, it's not exactly the same. For instance, This week I was watching a PBS special on the 9-11 Commission. And now that we have a level of history behind us with 9-11, they were looking back and they could see all of the signs that should have been evident, things that were predictive of what was to come. And now with a level of historical insight, they can look back and see the signs that they missed. And that's what Matthew does. He looks back with historical insight and sees the things that they missed. So what happens in the book of Isaiah is there's a prophecy that's given, that's fulfilled, and yet the fuller meaning of it is not fully realized until Matthew, in his position, looks back and says, now all of this happened in order to fulfill that which was spoken of by the prophet. So there's a connection between Isaiah 7 and Matthew chapter 1 as it relates to this name, Emmanuel. There's an immediate fulfillment in the book of Isaiah, and yet there's a fuller fulfillment of the sense of Emmanuel that Matthew brings to bear. The connection between Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1 is the name Emmanuel. More than anything about the virgin birth, more than the coming of a son, it is the name Emmanuel that links these two passages. And that's really important for you to understand because it will then help you to see that the name Emmanuel, God with us, is loaded with a particular message both in Isaiah's day and in Jesus' day that we need to hear. In fact, a lot of names in the book of Isaiah have significant meanings. Um, Even Isaiah's own son, two of them, their names have very specific meaning. For instance, one of the sons' name was Sheel Yashub, and it meant a remnant will return. So a son was born. Isaiah named him something as a marker that, that a remnant of Israel would return. And then he has this other son. His name, are you ready? Here it is. It's Meher Shaloha Hashbaz. I worked all week on that. All right. <laughs> May her and that means this, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. This child was born as a reminder that the coming judgment of God was coming quickly. And both of the names of these children have deep meaning. So it makes sense that in the book of Isaiah, God would have another son come, whose name Emmanuel would also have meaning, God with us. The problem is, is we are so familiar with God with us that it doesn't have as deep of meaning as what it should should and what I want to do is unpack for you why that name should be really significant and what is going on in Matthew 1 and what's going on in Isaiah 7 that that name Emmanuel God with us is a really big deal so Ahaz Ahaz is a king who has faithless fear the promise of Emmanuel in Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah 7 comes at a very tumultuous time in Israel's history. Here's a map of um, what the, uh, the known world looked like at this time. You'll notice this big green blob is the country of Assyria. They had pretty much taken over all of the known world under a ruler named Tiglath-Pileser III, He had conquered city after city, and and he had basically begun this this campaign moving um, towards uh, the Mediterranean Sea where they would come in and besiege a city, the capital city, take the people and make them captive. And Assyria was really the lone superpower at at this particular time in Israel's history. Now, along with this, you have um, the nation of Israel divided into two different nations. You have the nation of Judah in the south. Uh, ruled by Ahaz, and they have the, the nation of Israel in the north, and then you also have another nation named Syria to their north. So it goes from the bottom, Judah, Israel, and Syria. And the challenge is, is that as Assyria made its um, move towards the Mediterranean Sea, the closer they got to Syria and Israel and Judah, the more pressure they fell under because they knew that the Assyrian storm was coming. And in light of that, began making preparations as to what they were going to do. So Israel and Syria made an alliance. They determined that in order to stave off the impending invasion of Assyria, they were going to form an alliance together in order to protect themselves against this looming threat. And they wanted Ahaz and Judah to join them. So they wanted a three-fold alliance in order to defend off this coming invasion by the nation of Assyria. Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he is not a good king. Look at Second um, Kings 16 and verse two. We'll learn a few things about the nature of this king. Second Kings 16:2 says this, Ahaz was twenty years old when he began to reign. And he reigned sixteen years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. As his father David had done. So he's part of the line of David. He's part of that promise that God made that there'd always be someone from the line of David ruling on the throne. But this guy was a loser king. Okay? So there's good kings, there's winner kings, and there are loser kings. And this king is a loser king, and we see why. It says, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, verse 3, he even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people Israel. I won't go into too much graphic detail on this, but part of the worship of a God called Moloch was actually sacrificing children because they believed that by doing so they would gain the favor of the God, Moloch, and they would thereby be financially or militarily successful. God views the sacrifice of children in this way as the lowest of all lows. Loser kings were always involved in some sort of child sacrifice. Verse 4, and he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So the sense that the idolatry of the nation has just gone gangbusters under Ahaz's rule. So, the wicked and godless king Ahaz is being threatened. He's being threatened by Syria and Israel. They want him to form an alliance with them in order to fend off this coming invasion by Assyria. And they say to Ahaz, if you don't join us, we're going to attack you anyways and lay siege to the city. So Ahaz is between a proverbial rock and a hard place. He's got the Assyrian threat coming. He's got Israel and Assyria now forming this alliance and they want him to join them. And if he doesn't, He's going to be attacked anyways. So this is the context in which Isaiah 7 takes place. This wicked and godless king is under pressure. In fact, um, Isaiah uh, 7-2 tells us that when the people of of Judah heard that um, uh, Israel and Syria had made an alliance, it says that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. So Ahaz is in a position where he is incredibly afraid, the people of Israel are incredibly afraid, and no doubt they're saying, what are you going to do Ahaz, what's going to happen? Syria is right coming on our border, Syria and Israel want us to join, what is it that you're going to do? So, look at Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 3. In the midst of this crisis, God sends Isaiah and his son, whose name means a remnant will return, and he meets him at the conduit of the upper pool. Verse 3, Isaiah chapter 7. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear-Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Pause there. Ahaz is probably going out to check his water supply to the city. You know Why? Well, because whenever a a coming attack happened, their strategy was you go and find the capital city, you form a blockade around it, and you starve the people out of the resources for anywhere between a year and three years, so you completely weaken them, and then you go and attack them. That was the, the strategy. You set up a camp, no resources get in, and if you can, you cut the water supply off. That's why a very famous tunnel in Israel is called Hezekiah's Tunnel. King Hezekiah was able to find a way to uh, create a tunnel underneath the city that, that got water from the Gihon Springs to the inside of the city without it ever coming above ground. And so therefore they could always have a fresh water supply. To have that kind of supply meant that you were safe. This is well before Hezekiah's time. And Ahaz is checking his water supply to see how much water do I have if I'm attacked. So as he's there, Isaiah and his son meet him. And God... Wants Isaiah to deliver a message. Verse 4. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Who's he referring to? Well, the two kings to the north, Israel and also Syria. At the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabio as um, the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Skip ahead to verse 9. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Let me translate all of that for you. What Isaiah is saying to Ahaz is this. Ahaz, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Because the plans of Syria and Israel are going to fail. Put your faith in God's help. Be firm in your faith in your hope that God will deliver you. Well, it sounds great. Well, the, but the problem is, is, remember, Ahaz is a loser king. He's never trusted God throughout his entire reign. He's certainly not going to start now. And, and the problem is that Ahaz has already probably devised his plan and begun to set it in motion. He has determined that his solution to this problem is to do an end run around Syria and an end run around Israel. He's not going to join their alliance. Instead, what he's going to do and what he eventually did, according to Second Kings 17, is take gold from the temple and gold from the royal palace and send it as tribute to the king of Assyria and ask in advance of his coming if he can be his vassal. So instead of trusting in God, instead of joining this alliance, Ahaz makes this deal with the king of Assyria. I will give you this amount of money, stripping the gold. Imagine that moment as he takes the gold out of the temple and delivers it to this pagan king as an offering for him to become his vassal servant. Now, in the midst of all of this, God knows this loser king's heart, and he tells Isaiah that Ahaz should request a sign from God to confirm God's word. Look at Isaiah 7 and verse 11. This is where our story picks up. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz quotes a verse in Deuteronomy. And what he does is he makes his plans hidden by spiritual language. He has a plan, and he would rather trust his own political savvy, his own brokering of a deal, to figure his way out of it. It's almost as if Ahaz says, Isaiah, I don't need a sign, brother. I've got a plan. And for that matter, the Bible says, don't put the Lord to test. And what he does is he uses religious language to cover his tracks. In response to this loser king whose heart is filled with fear, who's taking gold from the temple, who's using religious language to cover his self-confidence, God then says this in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. God says, Okay, so you're not going to ask a sign? I'll give you one myself. And here's my sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, Emmanuel means what? God with us, right? So the sign he says is a virgin's gonna conceive and you will call his, or he, his name will be called Emmanuel. That name has big time significance. And then verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good. And here's the clincher verse, verse 16. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Do you see what the promise is? The the promise in the Old Testament was not connected to the virgin. It wasn't connected to the child. The the, the promise was that God with us means that God is on your side, Ahaz, and before this child grows up and before he's old enough to know the difference between good and evil, the two kings that you fear will be destroyed. The land is going to be taken. And sure enough, it happened. A few years later, 722 B.C., Assyria took over the land of Israel, led it captive, and Judah was there and remained. And the whole point of what's going on in Isaiah 7 has very little to do with the word virgin or the fact that a child is born. It has to do with the fact that this child has a name, and before this child grows, the northern countries of Syria and Israel will be deserted. Now, there's a great deal of controversy over the Hebrew word here for virgin. It means Alma. It can be translated as virgin, also young woman. And what do I think is happening here? I think this. I think that what, what, what Isaiah is saying is that there's a young woman who's not married right now, who will be married soon, and she will bear a son. And that before that son grows up, these two nations will be destroyed. I don't think that Isaiah 7 is implying that a first virgin birth is going to happen, nor do I think that he's saying that the child will be divine. I don't think you can make a great case for the virgin birth out of Isaiah 7. You can make a great case for that out of Matthew 1. What's happening in Isaiah 7 is not necessarily about the virgin birth. Instead, it's about the fact that there's a son that's going to be born and this son will be a a symbol, a sign, a God-delivered prophetic word that before he grows to a particular age, your fears are not necessary, has I'm going to take care of you. So we're not sure who the young woman is, we don't even know who the child is. And the prophetic word is not so much about either of them. The focal point of the prophecy in Isaiah 7 is about the connection between the birth of this child and the promise, God is with us. Isaiah 7 was meant here to help us understand that Ahaz was being rebuked for his faith Less fear, his self-confidence, and his foolish plans. Ahaz is being told by God, you cannot solve your own problems. God is the one who is going to intervene in this national crisis. God is going to preserve his people. Ahaz, Emmanuel, God is with us. He will intervene. He is among you. Intervention is coming. God is going to vindicate His people. A child will be born to show you that God will deliver you. Don't trust your plans. Trust in the God of Israel who alone can deliver you. But Ahaz would have none of that. He would have done much better if he would have stopped putting his faith in an earthly nation and started trusting in the living God. So, In Isaiah 7, the whole context of what's going on with this subject of Emmanuel was meant to be this sign that God is on your side. He's going to deliver you. He's there to rescue you. The looming threat of Assyria is there. But don't put your trust in your own plans. Instead, believe that God is going to be your deliverer. And to show you that, Ahaz, God is going to send a child and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see how the name now has such beautiful and bigger significance maybe than what you ever even realized before now fast forward 700 years to the new testament in the new testament we find another man named joseph who's also facing a deep crisis his crisis isn't one of a national power but rather it's of personal humiliation his crisis is that his soon-to-be wife Mary is pregnant and he knows he's not the father. And Matthew chapter 1 tells us that because he was a righteous and just man, he was going to put her away quietly. Verse 19 says he was going to divorce her quietly. And what happens in Matthew chapter 1 is that God intervenes by, by sending an angel to Joseph in a dream. Look at verse 20 of Matthew 1. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. What Joseph learns at that moment is that the child in her womb was divinely conceived. The child is the Son of God. Now now here is something that we might be familiar with in our understanding of the Bible, but from Joseph's perspective, keep in mind, this has never happened before. This is unbelievable if not impossible. But there's even more. He tells him that the child's name will carry enormous significance. It says, She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Here, in this moment, we learn about the mission of God behind this miraculous birth. God now is going to send another child. God has another plan. And the child will in fact be the long-awaited Messiah, the chosen one. And God will use this child to save his people from the transgressions that separate them from their living God. And everything now in the Old Testament has been foreshadowing what is going to be fulfilled in Joseph's lifetime. What's happening here, don't miss this, is that God is on the move to save his people once again. But this time he will not just save them from the looming power of an evil empire or the conquest of a foreign country. This time, no, God's mission is to save his people from the real foe in life, namely their sins. Underneath the conflict of all that happens in life, underneath all wars and at the core of all crimes and, and injustice and the cause of all enemy is our greatest foe, which is our sin. It destroys, it separates, it tarnishes, it kills, it damns. But in the name of this child named Jesus, everything will change. His name literally means Jehovah saves. It means that God is going to come And the announcement of his miraculous intervention has now taken place, and deliverance is going to come to God's people. So, how is this connected to Isaiah 7? Well, when Matthew looks through the lens of what he knows about Christ, what he sees in the virgin birth of Jesus, what he sees in this child and the name Jesus, he can't help but make the connection. He can't help but see the ultimate fulfillment promised in Isaiah chapter 7, the first fulfillment happening in, in Ahaz's lifetime, and now the second, more more grand fulfillment happening in the person and the work of Jesus. He sees the coming of this child, the birth through the virgin, the, the, a virgin the, the presence of God, the deliverance of God, taking all new meaning, and that's why Matthew says in chapter 1 and verse 22, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew adds this little parenthetical plot, which means God with us. What he sees is in the same way that God delivered the people of Judah, in the same way that this child in Ahaz's day was a sign that God was with you, now there comes another child, another deliverer who will be God with us in a whole new way. He wants us to see that like in the days of Ahaz, God is intervening on behalf of his people. He is gloriously and miraculously making a way to deal with the most pressing threat on the lives of men and women. The birth of this child announces the glorious news that God, once again, is with us. It's that this son is coming as an intersection in history and will become the deliverer from the looming threat of mankind's greatest problem. It's as though Matthew is saying through this little name, Emmanuel, that help is on the way. As a boy, I love to watch Western movies. And even as an adult, I still do. And one of the things I love about Western movies is, you know, just when the darkest of dark moments, when the firefight gets so strong and you're out in the Wild West and and all sorts of bad things are happening, all you need to do is listen over the hills for one particular sound. And it's this sound. (laughs) What's coming? The Calvary cavalry be sure you get that right the cavalry is coming I never understood why men on horses made that big of a difference but anyways they do because they come and they come and they help that there's a sense that help is on the way and what Matthew is saying to us in the midst of Matthew chapter 1 is that God intervenes in the course of history and that help is on the way that God once again is with us and as he looks at the lens of what he sees and knows about Jesus and all of that he was in terms of his fulfillment and he looks back to the lens of history he sees the parallels that in the way that Ahaz couldn't have ever known and the way in which he completely failed the test he put his trust in his own plans instead of putting his hope in the living God now Matthew says Jesus has come in order to verify that God is with us once again to deliver us from our great foe that being to save his people from their sins so I began my study of the name of Emmanuel with a question what is the connection between Isaiah 7 and Matthew 1. And here it is. Real hope. Listen. Real hope comes from God's help. The reason why Matthew puts this parenthetical thought in there, why he talks about this child and then says all of this was to fulfill what was spoken about in the Old Testament. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Why is Matthew telling his readers that? And what does is Isaiah want Ahaz to know? What is God trying to speak into the heart of this loser king? He's trying to tell him and tell us that real hope only comes from God's help. That's a really important word to get into our self-sufficient, self-driven, I got my life all together, mind and heart, because we are so prone to think I got it when we don't got it at all. It's also really helpful for those of you who are entering into a Christmas season and you're looking at Christmas Day and all the celebrations and all the traditions and there's an aching hole in your heart and you honestly have this thought, I don't know how I'm going to do the next five days. Or you got some relatives you're going to be hanging out with in the next couple of days. You're like, I don't know how we're going to do this. I don't know how it's going to happen. You know. And just so you know, every family has those people in them. Okay, so just chill out. Everyone's got, everyone's got cousins they don't like hanging around with. Okay. And and, and when you approach that season, it ought to be, you know what? Our hope, our hope in this is God can help us. So as I kind of put together Matthew one and. Birth of these two children, Isaiah 7, the fact that Ahaz had this threat from Assyria, and the threat in the New Testament is our own sin. What, a couple of things that I just want to tease out of here that come to mind, some summary thoughts. Here's the first one A personal takeaway from me is this that my plans can be treason against God. You know, it's not just that we have our plans, but it's sometimes that our plans are actually godless. Meaning that, that you know, I have no ability to change my situation on my own. The, the older I get, the more I know how helpless I really am. Like this morning I sat in my living room with a cup of coffee, my Bible, Christmas tree, fire. It was like a hallmark moment and I'm, I'm reading in Zephaniah. And, um, and I'm just realizing that everything that I have, I've received. And I sat there, I thanked the Lord for all the things I could see that I, I I just thanked the Lord for everything that I have because I have nothing apart from Him. I don't have breath. I don't have energy. I don't have anything. Everything I have, I have received. And I find myself thinking, so who do I think I am? I got nothing without Him. And my plans, are often my attempt at a subtle or defiant way of making an end run around God. You know, sin by definition is my attempt to be my own God, set my own rules and and live by what I want. And my plans, not just asking for God's endorsement, but my plans when considered in a way that don't include God, are not just bad, they're treason. And and I think one of the things that we need to realize here is that at the core of what Ahaz's problem was, is he didn't care if God was going to deliver him. He'd rather have Assyria as his protector. And that that becomes the, the fault line for us to deal with when, when circumstances in life come our way and we, we read that the Lord is my portion, I will hope in Him. And you'd say, well, yeah, that's true, but I'd just rather have security at work. The Lord is my portion, I will hope in... Yeah, i just rather would have my marriage not be on the rocks. And my plans can be treason against God. Isaiah 64.3 says, Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Even my best is not anything apart from Him. Secondly, that there is no real deliverance without God. Over and over in the Bible, we see this theme coming up again and again and again and again. Whether it's Old Testament Israel or it's New Testament Gospel, it is that God is our ultimate deliverer. We are a part of His plan, His drama, His story. Our aim in life is to offer Him glory. We are helpless people on our own. Our need because of our own sin is so great. The consequences of our wicked hearts are so overwhelming and our power is so limited. The Bible describes us as spiritually dead that our only hope is the mercy of God. The story of salvation is God intervening in our helpless estate and helping people who couldn't help themselves. So when you gather your little ones around the Christmas tree and you open presents and and you share in the joy of the holiday season, remind your hearts that we have nothing without God's deliverance. God with us, Psalm 18 says that God is our refuge and our strength. Third, get this, God with us is the essence of the joy of eternal life. That, that God has taken us from where we were in the Garden of Eden, God with us, sin marred it, and then brought His Son, the, the the new manifestation of God with us, in order so that we could be with Him eternally. Revelation 21.3, here's what it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. So the beauty and the joy of eternal life is the fact that we are with God. He's returned, God with us. So in the garden, it was God with us, sin martyred. In the wilderness wanderings, God showed up in the temple, God with His people. He was among them, so they had all these laws, so that they would know how holy God was. And then to the prophets, the major and the minor, God's glory left His people, because they abandoned Him, and now the Son, the Messiah, comes, and He's described as God with us, in in the midst of our world, becoming the means by which we can be brought back to God, so that once again, and We could have God with us again So it begins with God with us He sends God with us to us So that we can be God with Him forever and all of eternity That's the story of redemption And it's all encapsulated in this idea Of God with us And it all Focuses On one person And that is Jesus None of this works None of it works without the person and work of Jesus. John 1.14, a very critical text as John introduces Christ to the people to whom he was writing, trying to help them understand what it was when he came and was incarnated in the flesh. Here's what it says, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There it is again. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 16, listen to this. And from His fullness, the fullness of what? From the fullness of all that He is dwelling among us, from His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So it is... The most important fact of everything that you'll hear this morning, that Jesus is the personal embodiment of hope and help. Real hope and real help only comes through Jesus. He is the one through whom the ultimate fulfillment of God with us took place, meaning that the greatest threat in our lives is not a superpower, it's not a health issue, it's not another pr- person in your orbit, it is the sinfulness of your own heart, and the only one who can bring hope and help you of that pro- with that problem is the person of Jesus, because he's the only person who came and bore sins on his own body so that your sins could be forgiven. You could not make self-atonement for your own sins. Because your sacrifice of your own body would have been marred by sin. So therefore your own sacrifice wouldn't have been sufficient. And here is Christ who comes and embodies all of what God is, hangs on the cross in order so that he might bring his people from separated now to being with him. The title of my message is that everyone should love the name Emmanuel. And you should Because the name Emmanuel, God with us, announces that hope and help have come, that they have come very specifically through the person and work of Jesus. And this is what Matthew saw when he saw the full unfolding drama, when he heard about the the dream that Joseph had and the angel that comes, talks about the virgin birth and conceived of the Holy Spirit. His name will be Jesus. He's he's going to come to save people from their sins. And it's no wonder that Matthew looks back and says, this was to fulfill what was spoken about by the prophet that the virgin shall conceive and they will call his name Emmanuel which means god with us matthew saw it. it's the intersection of god's glory and his plan with humanity and here comes the insertion of this child that will become the full embodiment of the glory of god and the humanity of man and in this child will now become birth the possibility of god and man being reconciled god with us ushers in a new day of hope and help and it only comes to christ So I started with real hope comes from God's help. Let me adjust it. Real hope comes from God's help through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no help from God unless it's through His Son. And that is the one thing you not only celebrate, but you have to have at the core of your heart during this season. Because without that reality, there is no Christmas. Without that reality, there is no hope. Without that reality, there is no help for people who are trapped in their sin. God with us. He's Emmanuel. He is our real help and our real hope. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our help and our hope. And for all of the many life experiences that are represented in this room where people are at today, I pray that you would remind us at various stages in our lives that without your help, Lord Jesus, and without your provision of grace there is there's no hope for us so Lord for those today who maybe are fully understanding that the looming threat of their sin is so greater than anything else the, the gaping hole of their spiritual heart is is there because they've never been reconciled to you by receiving Christ Lord that perhaps today would be a day Or your spirit would open the eyes of particular men and women, children, to see that their only hope from the looming problem of their sin is receiving Christ. Oh Lord, thank you that that's what we celebrate this season. And Lord, for those who have some very difficult days ahead, some challenging days, or Lord, just all too familiar days, would you... Would you saturate these next days with a reminder that everything we have we've received, and without you, Lord Jesus, we've got we've got nothing. And so we pray that you'd be exalted in our lives in a hundred different ways over this holiday season. Thank you, Christ, that you are and were God with us. In Jesus' name. Amen.